Hey, good afternoon you. Welcome to Tuesday's programme. It is the 9th of January 2024. I'm Richie Allen. Live from Salford as usual. Reach out to me during the programme. Uh, message me through the app. The app for The Richie Allen Show or richieallen.co.uk. It's the BBG, not the BBC. This is your Richie Allen Show. Live from the magnificent city of Salford. It's The Richie Allen Show. Broadcasting live on richieallen.co.uk and multiple platforms around the world. And now, here's your host, Richie Allen. Now, Ben Irvine is a terrific guy. He's a philosopher and author. And he has been writing about how the COVID response from the British government was fundamentally driven by, well, organisations with weird agendas and public sector unions. He's been doing much more than that. He's written several really interesting books. We'll be speaking with Ben Irvine in the second hour of the programme. Extended conversation. You do not want to miss that. Before that, I'll be joined by Derek Bly. Derek is the president of Ireland First. It's a political party. He'll join us on the line from Fermoy. Uh, that'll be around about 29, 30 minutes from now. Uh, we're going to be talking about protests across Ireland against um, the housing of migrants in villages and towns, in disused B&Bs and hotels. We'll talk about much more with Derek Ply. So it'll be an interesting programme. And uh, as I've already mentioned, if you'd like to join in with your opinion, you know how to do it. It couldn't be any easier. Now, do please download the app. And if it tells you, because you happen to be in Norway, the app isn't supported in your country, use a virtual private network to do it and you'll get it. Thousands of people have already downloaded the app. That isn't an idle boast. It's a fact. So do check it out. Hey, listen, before we get into happenings in Ireland, which are relevant to everybody else in the world, and they really are, let's talk very briefly about Joey Barton. Interesting character, Joey Barton. He's had a colourful life. He played football for Manchester City and Newcastle, I think, most notably. He played briefly for England. And, um, well, he's become something of a social media sensation. He's also been a manager. He managed in Bristol. Was it Bristol Rovers? I can never remember. Anyway, he's got a podcast coming out really soon. And he's behaving, I don't know if he's behaving strangely, but he's putting out a lot of inflammatory things on social media. And if you were a cynical man or a cynical woman, you might say, or you might venture the opinion, that he's doing this to promote his forthcoming podcast. He might be, he might not be. Anyway, he said some, again, I'm going to use the term inflammatory, things about female pundits working during the coverage of men's football games. And he has been been pretty scathing in his condemnation of these women. He compared two former female footballers to serial killers Fred and Rose West. You can hear the smile in my voice because this is just silly. It's preposterous, right? But anyway, there's something interesting coming out of this. Yes, he compared any Aluko and Lucy Ward to Fred and Rose West. And this has reached the political... This has reached the political class, if you want to say that, because the Department for Culture, Media and Support, let me say that again, the Department for Culture, Media and Sport Select Committee sat today and uh, a guy called, let me get his name right now, Andrew, no, no, Stuart Andrew. Stuart Andrew is a sports minister and he sat before the Department for Culture, Media and Support Select Committee. He took questions, which happens pretty regularly. And an MP from Sunderland called Julie Elliott 
asked this guy, the sports minister, Stuart Andrew, to comment on the behaviour of Joey Barton online, saying things deemed to be offensive and misogynistic. And here's the interesting thing, right? The sports minister condemned Barton's remarks. Of course he did. He said, these are dangerous comments that open the floodgates for abuse and that isn't acceptable. And even more interestingly, he went on to say that um, Meta and the other social media companies might want to take a close look at Joey Barton and whether or not they should be hosting his podcast. And that's what I'm interested in, and I'm sure you're interested in as well. Joey Barton's comments are foolish. He might have some point that positive discrimination might be somehow taking away from the enjoyment of watching live football on TV. Yes, some of these women are not qualified. I will say that. Some of them are brilliant, and I'm no virtual, virtue signaller, as you know. You know, I've talked previously, haven't I, about Sue Barker. I know she doesn't do football. And uh, Gabby, Ros- not Gabby Rosalind, Gabby, yeah, Gabby Yoris, who's now Gabby Logan, that's right. And others, right? So there are some very, uh, what's her name, Karen? What's her name? She's uh, often to be found on Sky Sports. So there are some interesting pundits. But a lot of them, I think they're ticking boxes. So he's making an interesting point. But what's even more interesting here is this idea that the social media companies might pre-ban this man's podcast because of the allegedly misogynistic comments he has made. I'm fascinated by this. It ties in with the online safety bill and how we all need to be protected from hearing things that we might find offensive in the very near future. Joey Barton. This could all be a pretty silly way of promoting a podcast. I invited Barton on this programme. I didn't receive a response because I wanted to ask him that. Are you serious or are you just acting the Egypt to promote your podcast? Anyway, let's talk uh, about Ballinrobe and County Mayo. We talked about this yesterday. I'm following up on this today and then we'll leave it for this week because I think it is an important issue. As I said, if it seems to be these days, particularly since 2020, if Ireland sneezes today, the rest of the world catches a cold tomorrow. That might be a stretch, but bear with me. Anyway, Ballinrobin County Mayo, it was planned to use a disused hotel to house 50 male refugees or asylum claimants. There was a protest. There was uproar. Then the government changed tack. It changed the plan and said 50 young males would not be housed there, but they would house families there instead. Was this the government kowtowing to the protesters or not? Let's hear the RTE radio show Morning Ireland, the flagship programme, it dealt with this this morning. Did the government bow to pressure from protesters in Ballinrobe in County Mayo who did not want 50 men moving into a local hotel? That's the question. Men who had travelled from halfway around the world seeking international protection. Well, the government says it did not, but something changed. On Sunday, the Taoiseach told this week here on RTE radio that no community can have a veto on who lives in their town or village. 24 hours later, the Department of Integration confirmed that 50 men would not be moving into the hotel. It would be families instead. Where the 50 men will go is unclear. It's unclear. So let's hear from the Tornishta. The Tornishta, Michal Martin. What did he say? I understand people may have fears uh, and concerns. And I do think we will be continually looking at this in terms of the, the, the right form of... of numbers in any given centre or the, 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 the composition of, of, of families versus uh, 
uh, individual males and so on. We have to seek alternative accommodation elsewhere for those individuals also. Short and sweet from Micheál Martin, the Tornish da. Yes, Deputy Taoiseach. Anyway, right. Um, the presenter introduced a British academic called or named Professor Jenny Fillimore from Birmingham University. She's a migration expert. I don't know how you become a migration expert, but she is. You will again hear the presenter asking a question. Increasingly, we are hearing opposition to single men moving into an area. Representatives are... That's a bit unfair now by the Irish radio presenter, isn't it? Increasingly, we are hearing opposition to single men. It isn't single men they're talking about. It's dozens of men. Now, I've no axe to grind here either way. I'm trying to maintain some level of objectivity here. But that's a bit disingenuous, isn't it, to say people are disagreeing with single men. They're not. They're saying you're, you're letting in dozens into these villages. Anyway. Somewhat reluctant to spell out exactly why single foreign men are problematic. But the implication is that they are a threat to people's safety, namely women and children, a claim with no basis in fact, according to the police here. So where has this specific trope come from? Right. And the academic Jenny Fillimore from Birmingham says... Well, um, it's been rumbling along for quite a few years now, Um, not just in Ireland, in the UK and in mainland Europe too. Um, You know, the general shift in thinking of um, these young people as vulnerable young men to labelling them as illegal immigrants, um, suggesting that they may be coming to exploit um, welfare systems uh, and generally to take advantage, um, which actually isn't reflected in the reality of their... It isn't reflected in the reality, says the academic Jenny Fillimore. So she said there's a movement, there has been a movement away from looking upon asylum seekers as vulnerable and in need of care that has changed and now people look upon them as people who are coming to exploit the benefit system. But again, you see, this is what the media does. The media speaks, um, and not only do presenters speak, but guests speak in generalisations. And they don't really dig down into what's really going on here. What, what she could say is that because public services have been basically destroyed, decimated, you might say, decimated is a word I use probably too often, and living in towns and villages is becoming increasingly more difficult as time goes on, that people, you know, put their hands up in the air in exasperation and say, we can't get a doctor's appointment, getting a good school place for our kids is pretty difficult these days, and you're what, you're, you're going to bring in three, four, five hundred, maybe a thousand asylum seekers? That's a fairer way of describing how most people look at these issues, I would say. Let's hear more from the academic. Their situation at all. And we hear increasingly ordinary people repeating it. They're not interrogating the claim, they're believing it, they're repeating it. And many wonder, would it be such a concern if the 50 men were from Australia or from the UK or from Canada, for example? The irony of, a, of an Irish broadcaster, the irony of an Irish presenter, criticising the Irish public for not challenging the um, the narrative for not asking questions. She basically said there, more and more we find Irish people just repeating what they're being told. They're not challenging it in any way. Imagine the irony of a broadcaster in any country saying that. Do we have to talk about the last four years? Do we have to talk about the Iraq war? Hang on a second, love. You're in no position to criticise Irish men, women, or anybody else for that matter for swallowing a narrative, love. Anyway... What does the academic say? Yeah, um, I mean, what, 
it's very difficult for people um you know who, who don't work in the sector of migration or you know in the civil service or whatever uh, to know much about um why these people are coming here who they what what was that again a moment ago you were happy to talk about people repeating tropes and you said that they repeat these tropes without having much evidence. And then you said what? Work in the sector of migration or you know, in the civil service or whatever uh, to know. Here. It's very difficult for very difficult for people um, you know who, who don't work in the sector of migration or you know, in the civil service or whatever uh, to know much about. Um, why these people are coming here, who they are, um, you know, the, the, the dominant sources of information suggest that they're trouble, you know, that they're going to bring problems um, and that they're going to take advantage, that they are risky, that, they, you know, there's, there's always um, suggestions that they're going to be a security problem. And there is no real other source of information for people. Um, so it, it, it's not, it's understandable that they believe what they hear, especially... Um, especially in a vacuum where the media isn't asking any questions of government. You see, the Irish media and the British media isn't asking government, listen, how much exactly do you know about the people who are coming into the country? I mean, exactly how much do you know about them? You know, you need to know a lot about them. You know, you, need, you might need to know quite a lot about their backgrounds. And in the absence of that, of course, people are saying, well, you know, why such secrecy? Why is the media and the government colluding to, you know, throw a blanket of silence over this issue when we just want some simple answers? We'll leave that. I was going to play more of it, but we'll leave it. Uh, Jenny Fillimore from uh, Birmingham University speaking to Morning Ireland on RTE. The time is now 14 minutes past the hour. I'm Richie Allen. Coming up shortly, Derek Bly from Cork, the President of Ireland first. And later on, I can't wait to speak with Ben Irvine. Ben's a philosopher and an author, and he's doing some stellar work looking into how it all happened in 2020. Who the chief players were, who the main players were, how did they get away with it? And why is it so important now that we look back to 2020? I suppose in the absence of any genuine inquiry into the goings-on back then. So we'll leave that uh, immigration for now until we speak with Derek. Um, Israel has killed over 25,000 Palestinians now. And of that number, more than 10,000 are children. You might ask yourself, what did they do to anybody? 10,000 children. If you attend rugby union in this country, if you go to Sale and watch Premiership Rugby Union, if you go to Leicester to watch Premiership Rugby Union, you know, you might get about 10,000. Have a look around next time you're in a crowd in a stadium where you've got eight, nine, ten thousand people in there, and then imagine every one of them is a child, and you'll be horrified. That's what they've done. 10,000 children, 25,000 Palestinians. And Israeli politicians melt down when genocide is mentioned. Um, Isaac Herzog is the president of Israel, and he said that anybody who accuses Israel of genocide is an anti-Semite. Well, call me an anti-Semite then. Anyway, BBC Radio 4 had Saudi Arabia's ambassador to the UK in the studio this morning. His name is Prince Khalid bin Bandar al-Saud. Try saying that after a few pints of Stella Artois or a couple of baby shams. Prince Khalid bin Bandar al-Saud. Speaking about Israel, he is speaking, as I said, to the BBC. I'd like to see the UK moderate its position a bit more because nuance and perception is important. And... While I may understand why in 
how a position has come to. A lot of people don't. And the world we live in today is a world of short sound bites. I'm sure there'll be plenty of them after this, this interview that don't necessarily capture a total position. What I would like to see is not just from Britain, but from the world, is to treat Israel the same way it treats everyone else. Because if anyone else had done what the Israelis are doing today, you would have seen them cut off from the international community. You would have seen people talking about sanctions. You would have seen all sorts of things. Um, I just don't see that fair behavior. And the blind spot towards Israel is a real problem because it provides a blind spot to the peace. It's difficult for me to get excited about this because Prince, let me just bring it up again, it's difficult to say even without a few stellas, uh, Prince Khalid bin Bandar al-Saud is right, of course, Israel should be sanctioned back, as I've said too many times, to the Stone Age, back to the Flintstones, right? Every ambassador should be kicked out. Israeli assets should be frozen around the world. The country should be economically brought to its knees. No doubt about that. And I've said this about the UK in the past. You know, when the UK was illegally bombing and destroying Afghanistan and Iraq and killing millions of people, the rest of the world should have gotten together and stopped it by sanctioning the UK back to the Stone Age. We don't make special rules for Israel. That wouldn't be fair. But I find it hard to get excited about Saudi Arabia's ambassador to the UK. How many Yemenis have been killed by Saudi Arabia in the last five, six, seven years? It's hundreds of thousands. Yeah, and of course, Michelle Hussein, is that her name? The presenter on BBC Radio 4. She's as useless as tits on a bull. She's as useless as tits on a bull. Like a proper presenter, like yours truly, would have said to her, Really? You're talking about the Israeli genocide in Gaza? Really? Shall we talk about Yemen for a few minutes? But no. Anyway, we'll leave that one there. So the Jeffrey Epstein Movie Club... Had many members, apparently, some voluntary members. Some hadn't a Scooby-Doo. They were being filmed. According to the Times today, covered this in the podcast this morning, sex tapes featuring the grand old Duke of York, who had 10,000 men. I won't do that gag again, it's terrible. Uh, Andrew is his name. Bill Clinton and Richard Branson were allegedly recorded by Epstein. According to Sarah Ransom, she's a British aristocrat or aristocrat. She made these allegations in emails she wrote in 2016. These emails were unsealed by a New York court yesterday. She said when she was 22, she was forced to have sex. She's in her 30s now. Incidentally, her friend had sexual intercourse with Clinton, Andrew and Branson, and that these incidents were filmed each time by Epstein. She said to, to in, in the emails in 2016, she said, thank God my friend got a hold of some of the footage of the film sex tapes, clearly identifying Clinton, Andrew and Branson, but Epstein is too clever to be seen in the footage. She says her friend was threatened by people connected to Hillary Clinton's presidential campaign. She was heavily intimidated, she said. Now, eventually, this Sarah Ransom, whose father is an aristocrat too. His name is what? What's his name, her father? Oh, I can't remember. Yeah, it's Lord Macpherson, the second Baron of Drumochter. Lord Macpherson. She said she retracts what she claimed because of the impact it was having on her family. 
So this is very interesting. Now, Alan Dershowitz was Jeffrey Epstein's lawyer. Dershowitz himself was accused of sexual assault, while in the company of Epstein, he continues to deny this. He says, or he tells Times Radio, he feels sorry for Prince Andrew. I think he made a terrible mistake. I suspect he was pressured by his mother to make that mistake. If he had fought that case, I believe he would have won. I believe the case would have been dismissed on a variety of grounds, but he didn't want to sit through a deposition or people around him didn't want to sit through a deposition. And so uh, he settled the case. Often you settle cases, not because you're guilty of what you charge, but because you don't want to admit other things that you've done. The reason I was willing to fight is I led, led a completely clean life. The only woman I've had sex with today I met Jeffrey Epstein has been my wife. So I welcome the deposition. Ask me anything you want about my sex life. The answer will always be the same. My wife, my wife, my wife, my wife, and only my wife. So I don't have to resolve any cases. They can question me all they want. Other people have other things to hide. Maybe they're not guilty of the alleged offense, but they might be embarrassed about other things. Alan doth protest too much, methinks. He doth protest too much. I'm, I'm not alleging anything other than he d protests too much because he was asked about Andrew. But he went into a long-winded defence of himself, which is a bit strange. Do you feel sorry for Prince Andrew, by do, the way? Do you feel sorry for Andrew? <laughs> do you feel sorry for him? Do you feel sorry feel, for Bill Clinton? Do you I feel sorry for Prince Andrew for this reason. Assuming everything they say about him is correct, assume everything. The woman who accused him was over the age of consent. Yeah, it's okay then. She was over the age of consent, so it's okay then. Basically, Dershowitz tells Times Radio it's okay, even if the woman is there under duress and is being pressured, leaned upon to have sex with people she doesn't want to have sex with. It's okay because she's over the age of consent. It's 22 minutes past the hour. Thank you so much for your messages. Coming in via the app, via richieallen.co.uk. This is your Richie Allen Show, live from Salford, here in the great city of uh, Greater Manchester. Anthony says, the way you noises are going on, you might see 10,000 in Old Trafford soon. Never, man. That's the amazing thing about United support. It doesn't matter how bad they get, they'll always have 74,000 people there. But thank you for that. Gaz says, governments are owned... This is the Great Reset. Schwab said we should prepare for an angrier world, he knew. Hello to Lewis, who says he doesn't think it's any coincidence that Boeing is having massive problems with its planes. Because in the last 20 years, Boeing brought in a massive programme of diversity in managerial positions. David says, read the story on the website. I don't think the staff believe that shite, he says. Someone high upstairs is getting a brown envelope. Keep these comments coming in, as I said, between now and the end of the programme. RichieAllen.co.uk, where it says comment life, or use the app because it's very simple to send a message straight through to me. It flashes up on my screen instantaneously. Isn't that good? It's good. It's good to have an app. It really is. So it is. Chris says, Dershowitz is a real piece of shite, isn't he? I don't know, Chris. I've known about Dershowitz and his career for many, many years. I interviewed Norman Finkelstein many times over the years. He had a legal spat Finkelstein did with Dershowitz when Finkelstein accused him of plagiarism. But yeah, he's an interesting character. I don't know what he did or didn't do. 
And it's not me being responsible. I just don't know what Dershowitz did or didn't do. Joe says, how can you background someone with no passport available? Yeah, there is that, you see. And some of these Irish men and women who are protesting around the country might say to RTE, well, if you had any decency, you might give us an extended interview where we could put these points to you. Why is it that so many men arrive in the country and haven't anything on their person, nothing that identifies them, where they came from, or any of that whatsoever? That is a fair question to ask, you know, regardless of your opinion on it. And I try to be fair and balanced. There you go. 24 and one half minutes past the hour. Fair and balanced. Who said that? I think it was a terrible news channel. Rob says, it's amazing how this is news when so-called conspiracy theorists were pointing this out years ago. And I'm not sure what Rob is referring to, maybe to the Epstein movie club. I wonder what else is going to come out of that. We might do a phone-in on this. I'll tell you why, because I I know you are interested in it. And you might have opinions on it. You might think, well, maybe it's one big distraction. Epstein is dead. We know he died in... To say he died in mysterious circumstances is an understatement. Okay? This early in the year, it's a big understatement. What's really going on there? You know? Um, yeah. I mean, it's, it, it's, it's a fair assumption that intelligence agencies use coercion and blackmail basically as currency. It's what they do to keep people in line. We might do a phone-in on that in the very near future. Derek Bly is the President of Ireland first. We'll chat with Derek in a moment. Later on, Ben Irvine will be on the Richie Allen Show. And Ben has written some really interesting books about the last three and a half, four years. My God, in only seven or eight weeks' time, it'll be four years since it all began, the scam. Can you believe that, can you? Can you believe it? I find it very difficult to believe. It doesn't feel like four years. 26 minutes past the hour. This is your Richie Allen show. There's none like it. My name is Richie Allen. Every episode of this program, which is live, is archived on Podomatic.com, by the way. popular independent news radio show. Listen on demand via your regular podcast provider. Right, that is uh, music from Chris Rea, The Road to Hell on The Richie Allen Show, 29 minutes past 4 o'clock. Tuesday's programme, the 9th of January 2024. Just before we welcome Derek Bly to the programme, uh, interesting email from Sarah. Thank you, Sarah. Richie, she says, the cynic in me would suggest the Boeing thing is about trying to put a question mark over air safety leading to less of us plebs willing to take the risk of flying, feeding into the climate nonsense, says Sarah. Now, Sarah, you might very well be right. I was listening to BBC Radio 5 Live this morning. Uh, Sarah is referencing, of course, the Air Alaska Boeing plane where the window blew out mid-flight. I did hear something interesting this morning, which might explain it, or might not. One of the companies involved in putting together airplanes, one of the companies which manufactures parts of the fuselage, uh, was in trouble. 
in recent years with staffing issues and all sorts of problems and they're putting it down to that. I'm not saying that's true, I'm just saying that is what they're saying. Thank you, Sarah. Now, we've already spoken about the governments. By the government, we mean the Irish government. It's U-turn in Ballinrobin, County Mayo. They took a disused hotel and they were going to put 50 men, single men, in there. Locals and others were not happy about it and protested over a number of days. Eventually, the government said, well, we're going to put families in there and not young men. However, the government denies, the Irish government, that it um, basically stood down in the face of the protest. This is happening across Ireland. It isn't unique to uh, to Mayo. So let's welcome to the programme for the first time uh, the president of a political party called Ireland First. He's in Fermoy, I believe. Let's say Diagwit, August Falcher wrote to Derek Bloy. Hello, Derek. Welcome to the programme. How are you, Richie? Thanks for having me on. Uh, it's an honour, pal. Next door to me, I'm a Waterford man myself, so not too r- right. far from yourself was I was I raised. Tell me this, do you think it was a climb down by the Irish government in the wake of the protest? No, no. And why I say that is because I've been speaking out against this for a long time now, and... It's not so much of a climb down as more of a tactic. Um, the Irish government, they have a habit, they have a, a record of offering to put families into buildings when there is a public backlash. But what you'll find is that after the families move in, and after the cameras go away and after the protest leaves, um, the the um, the men will then move into the building. So you think it's a kind of a bait um, and switch tactic? Ab- ab- absolutely. They've done it numerous times. They actually did it in Formoy here recently. We've we've got a school grounds here in the town. Um, it's called. Uh, St. Joseph's Convent. And word came out last year that they were moving um, asylum seekers in. So there was a protest, was mounted, and word quickly spread that families would be moved in. So the protest kind of subsided, and most people didn't want to protest, you know, women and children fleeing war. So most of it was stood down. The families were moved in. The, the, the TV cameras were there to document the families moving in. But what has happened since is most of the families have been moved out. And now we've got dozens of men from Africa, from the Middle East, Georgia, all stationed inside in this building. And making a nuisance of themselves. Derry, can we get a couple of things out of the, can we get a couple of things out of the way? Um because I've got sure. to ask I've got to ask these questions and then we can move on and talk about the issue more generally. Um the Irish media, uh, particularly the national media, I put this question to Herman Kelly, I put it to other Irish commentators last year and the year before, so I'll put it to you. The Irish media says that if these men were from Australia and they were white or they were from America 
there wouldn't be any protest, that this is basically about the ethnicity of these men. Now, the, obviously, the Irish media doesn't have the decency or the professionalism to speak to people like you and give you a chance to respond. I don't mean people like you, Derek, the way that sounded, but I mean people who are no, asking not. questions about this issue. So, so to, to put that to you, is it true if, if they were from Australia and they said, good day, mate, and they looked like you and they looked like me, would you not have a problem with it? Absolutely, I would. The the um, this isn't about race; it's about space. There's fourteen thousand people in this country currently, and I would add two hundred and fifty thousand people who who are under housed. Right, so there's fourteen thousand who don't have houses who are living in emergency accommodation. All right, and then you've got quarter of a million people. You know, we're talking 25, 30, 35 year olds who have who have to live at home with their parents who have absolutely no prospects of getting a home. Um, we protest Ukrainians, right, who are coming from safe parts of Ukraine. We protest them, right? The Ukrainians are white people. So... Can I, you, Derek, can, I, can I ask you, ethnicity? Can I ask you? Can I ask you? How would you determine, or how would I determine, if I was in your position? And I totally understand why people are asking these questions. I think they're legitimate questions. Mm-hmm. Um, but mm-hmm. how, who is qualified to determine which parts of Ukraine are safe and and which ones are not safe? Well, eighty-five percent of the country is not at war. The the war and I followed it since 2014. I followed right the Maidan protests closely right at the time. The war right has been isolated to a small part of the country in the in the east right since 2014, since late 2014, early 2015. Um, the Irish government never bat an eyelid at this war right when the Ukrainian military were blowing their own people to pieces in the Donbass, the Irish government didn't bat an eyelid. They didn't even mention it. It wasn't an issue, right? It was only when Vladimir Putin intervened in uh, February of 2022, right, did the Irish government um, step out and say, first they said, we're going to take 20,000 refugees, and then... They said 100,000, then they said 200,000, and then they said it's going to be an uncapped number. Even when they said 20,000 people, we still had 9,000 people in this country who were living in emergency accommodation. So for the Irish government to come out then and say that they were going to take 20,000 people when they couldn't even house their own 9,000 people, um, you know... That's a fair comment. Can I ask you another, can I put to you another criticism, not of you, but a criticism level at the protesters? Um, and, and of course, you'll get all the time you want to respond. And as I said, then we'll talk about the issue more generally, because I think it is a very serious issue. Like I, I, I observe it here in Salford too. I see a big change in the demographic locally, and I see the impact and the pressure it's putting on services here. So I do see all of this. Another and this might be an unfair criticism by the Irish media, but I'll put it to you anyway. And I, I, look, you're not speaking for everybody; you're only speaking for yourself. 
But the Irish media says, or some presenters say, in fact, I heard a, a news talk presenter say this recently, a woman whose name escapes me. She said, I'm fascinated by these protesters saying we have to look after our own first. She said, how many of them can show that in recent years they were doing anything to help the homeless in Ireland, either by feeding them or by trying to secure accommodation for them. Now, that's an interesting question. She's basically saying that the protesters, who she believes are racist or are so-called far-right, mm. they're using this whole thing of Irish homeless as a, a way to kind of justify their their bigotry or their dislike of of, of minorities from other countries. So what about that, that accusation that a lot of these protesters never really cared too much about the Irish homeless until it suited them to? What do you say? Well, Richie, I would say that it's the job of the Irish government to look after the Irish homeless. Um, but what I would say to that news talk presenter is, right, this, the same news talk presenter probably, you know, screams from the rooftops for more and more refugees. Has she taken any refugees into her house? You know, right? So she can criticize Fair me enough. or, you know, the people in the tent, right, for not taking homeless Irish into our houses when we don't have room. There's, there's, everyone's at, at their limit here in this country. But the same people that scream for refugees and more and more asylum seekers wouldn't, wouldn't dare put their hands, right, in their pocket, you know, to, uh, to take in refugees. But they, call me a racist for saying that um, we should house the Irish people first and then reach out to the rest of the world and and take people in um, to the best of our limits. No, I get that point. It's a fair point that Derek Bly is our guest. He's on the, the line from Fermoy. Derek is the president of Ireland first. There's a fascinating video on your Twitter, um, and our listeners can follow you on Twitter, um, Derek Bly, so it's B-L-I-G-H-E, you'll find Derek very quickly there. It's an amazing video, and it struck me, I've been a journalist since the mid to late 1990s, and I haven't seen much like this really. So I see you, and you're a very mild mannered, you're a very engaging guy in the videos you make, you're pretty decent with people, and you're open, and you're chatty, and all of that. And I see you standing around people. Thank you. No, you are, genuinely. And they, they confront you, people, and they're shouting at you to get out of Fermire, to get out of Cork. And what strikes me, I, I, I'm, I'm laughing at that because I know that if we put aside people's motivation or the perception of people's motivation, the fact remains that um, having an open-door immigration policy is devastating for communities and for people's access to public services. And I see these people screaming at you and getting all irate. And I look at them and I think, they must be impacted by this. It must be hitting their bottom line somehow. And yet they'd, rather than say, well, let's have a conversation about that and see, can we find some common ground? They'd rather stand there and scream across you know, a, a line and, and, and say you're a far right, you're a fascist and get out of Cork. I mean, they must be impacted by this. They must be feeling it themselves when they try to get a doctor's appointment or when they try to get a, a place for their kid in, in a local school. I find it amazing to see that. You posted one today like that. Yeah, it's actually, it's actually funny. The, 
the video you speak of was was taken um, the November before last. There was a, a, a rally in for Moy. It was a refugees welcome event. So myself and a few others went to it and you can see the footage on my my Twitter page and my Instagram. But um, the people at the rally were telling me that refugees were welcome in for my Right, but I wasn't. But um, some people that went to that rally from Formoy, there's a an area in in Formoy. Um, it's called uh, Abercrombie Place, and some well-to-do people from that area went to that rally and criticised me at the time, right, for speaking out against the refugee. Uh, crisis inverted commas but uh, the same people that criticised me back November 2022 are actually stood in the tent with me now in Formoy and we've been there for 51 days and nights 24 7 the, the same people that criticised me are stood in the tent because a new centre has been announced in the area and it's right beside their house. So those people were critical of me when the refugees were being put into a different part of town when it wasn't affecting them. And now, now Derek, all of a sudden it's at... Yep. This is an interesting thing. So now that it might come to their doorstep, now they're alongside you and they're saying, we've got a problem here. And are they brazen about that or are they contrite? Like, do they have the good grace to say, I'm sorry, Derek, for calling you a fascist? You know, this is actually a serious they, issue, you know? Yeah, they're, they're, they're not, you know, nobody has, has, has come up and apologised to me for calling me a, a racist and, and far right and a fascist and all, which I'm absolutely not. But um, but a lot of people who stayed quiet at the time, who were kind of on the fence, have approached me. Hundreds from the town, right alone, from from my thousands nationally, tens of thousands of people contact me and they say, you know, what you said at the time, you were spot on. We didn't know what to make of this at the time, but you know, thank you for you know standing up and you know speaking when when you were being attacked and your family was being attacked. We didn't know what was going on, but, you know, you spoke up for us and, and you know, and fair play. And then this is it. And, and that's why I spoke out against this right, at the start, Richie, because I knew while at the time my actions might have been unpalatable to some people, right, that the wind would quickly change and their opinion of me would would also change. So, and it so has, I know. Yeah, yeah no, the re, th th this is interesting because the accusation, being accused of being far right or being a fascist or being a Nazi, it can have devastating consequences for people financially. I mean, you'll be aware of this. I mean, it's, 100%. it's being used, these accusations are being used to make people unemployable. And I wanted to ask you, is that something you've worried about? Because, I mean, good luck with the career in politics. I hope it's, 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 a, it's, it's a great one for you and I hope you get what you want out of it, as I would anybody else I was speaking to on the programme. But, I mean, if it didn't work out, we all have bills to pay, we all have mouths to feed. You know, accusations like that, 
Um, whether they're right or wrong, I'm pretty sure in your case they're wrong. I don't believe you're a fascist. But they can be devastating for your future and for your future employment prospects. Is that something you've had to take into account? 100%. And, you know, as you're probably aware, no, Richie, I've listened to your show now for many years and I've great respect for what you do. But one of the reasons why Western governments increase, you know, taxes and carbon taxes and they, and they levy more, more and more bills on us is to keep us um, poor, is to keep us fighting to keep the lights on, right, and to keep the bills paid. Um, where that's slightly different for me is uh, maybe about 10 years ago, I um, had enough saved to buy a house. Uh, I'm So I've no mortgage on my house. I'm not a wealthy man by any means. I have very, very modest um, savings, uh, but I'm also a self-employed bricklayer. So where, where some people would be struggling to pay their mortgage and might have to work for a, a walk multinational company, you know, I can jump into my van and, you know, I can drive down to John and Mary and Fantastic. I can build a wall for them or I can lay a patio for them and I can support myself. So, you know... Do you understand then, Derek? Do you understand? This is really a really important thread. So I sometimes see people getting hammered for not standing mm. up, you know, and I, I mm. never, I never, uh, I never ever go after somebody for not standing up because they're but for the grace of God. Like there are many people I believe who'd like to say something about COVID lockdowns or keeping mm. kids out of school or or crazy immigration policies, but they might be mortgaged up to the gills. They might have mm-hmm. kids going to schools where they're paying for, it, and they're genuinely terrified of the consequences of losing the job and then finding themselves on the street. So I I forgive those who might know what's going on, but say, for the moment, I'm going to keep my head down, you know? I mean, you might not forgive them, but I'm guessing you probably do because you've said yourself, you know, you're in, a, you're in a situation where they can't destroy you financially, at least not easily. No, anyway. no, they can't. They, they, right, they are trying. They, you know, right, they do come after me with different, with different attacks. They, you know... The Gardaí, the Irish police have, have raided my home and they've taken, you know, thousands of euros worth of equipment out of my home. Completely illegally, mind you. Um, but, yeah. What have they but taken, they, Derek? They are, we talking, are we talking computers well, and phones and stuff? No. No. Well, they've taken two of my phones, right? Or they have those now with, with, with years now at this stage. I'm a legal firearm owner and um for hunting i like to hunt and i like to shoot rabbits and bits and pieces like that but the guardy raided my home about a year and a half ago and they took four uh four thousand euro worth of my firearms and um as far as i know now they've destroyed them Right. My licenses were cancelled and my firearms have been destroyed and I've, I've absolutely no comeback 
yet until I can get into a court. And why why, is, why, why, why is this, um, Derek, what was the reason for confiscating the guns? Because I um, did a stunt uh, in, in August of 2022, right? After the Ukrainian refugees started coming to Ireland, there was charity shops popped up around the country but only for Ukrainians, okay? So this was free clothes, whatever you wanted, but it was only for Ukrainians, right? Meanwhile, we had thousands of people sleeping on the streets. Did I lose you there, Richie? No, no, I'm, I'm gripped. Go ahead. Oh, sorry. We, right, we had thousands of people sleeping on the streets who, who also needed um, items like that, right? Irish people. Who, and and Arab people, African people, you know, people from from other countries than Ukraine, right? Were not entitled to that. So as a as a stunt, I went into one of these shops and I picked up a T-shirt. It was a kids' T-shirt. It was it was free, but only for Ukrainians. And I walked up to the the um, the cash register. There's no cash register. I walked up to the girl at the front and I said can I take this for my son? And she said, no, it's only for Ukrainians. And I said, well, that's discrimination. And she said, no, it's not. You have to be Ukrainian to get this. You can, you can see this video on my, my YouTube channel. Um, so I stepped outside the door of the shop, not out onto the street. This was in a shopping center, right? I stepped outside the door of the shop and I waited for the guardie to show up. The guardie showed up. I was, I was arrested and I was charged with burglary. No way. No, this was for, yeah. Jeez. This was for walking into an open shop in a shopping center and picking up a t-shirt that, that had that zero they were giving value. Away. That they were giving away. For, yeah, or that they were giving away. And I stepped just outside the door and I waited for the police to show up. The, the police showed up. I was thrown into a cell for six hours and I was charged with burglary. The reason I was charged with burglary, and I know now, was so they could justify coming to my home right, and taking my firearms. Um, they took my firearms. I had court case after court case after court case. Right, Eventually... The burglary charges were dropped, right? Because they knew right, they would not stand up in court. It was absolute nonsense. The burglary charges were dropped and I was charged with Section 4 theft, which is basically shoplifting. Um, they knew right, that they couldn't seize my firearms on a, a Section 4 theft charge. Um, so, yeah. And you never got that the guns. Still you, ongoing, right? So you might get the guns back in in the near future. Uh, <laughs> but you, but you don't. Well, look, I don't know. Come here, and I, I tell I'm, you. In I'm, in the few, I'm sorry, yeah. I'm sorry that happened to you. In the few, in in the few minutes we have left, um, yeah. Where's this going to go? Back, I say back home. I'm only across the water, um, in 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 yeah. England. But these protests around the country, I, I I do believe you are right when you say that more people are coming out and saying, look. 
we have had enough of it. I do believe you're right there, despite the best efforts of the Irish media to play it down. I, I do mm. think, how serious do you think it'll get? I mean, in terms of, first of all, what the government response will be. I mean, if more and more people come out and say, look, we're not against housing people, fleeing wars or fleeing persecution, but we can't do it when we can't look after our own people. So lots of more people might come out and say that. What do you expect the response will be from the government? Like, how draconian do you worry things might get in the, in the near future, Derek? Richie, the only tactics that the government, the Irish government, and any Western government have are hard-lying tactics. Okay? So they are going to clamp down on us um, harder and harder. And, you know, the more people I speak to around the place, the more people agree that we're probably headed for some type of a civil war here in this country because the government are absolutely doubling down on this policy. They are not backing down an inch, but neither are we. Neither are you. We want to resolve this peacefully. We do not want any bloodshed but it will be the Irish government that spill blood eventually. They're, the, you know, the cards are on the table and all the signs are pointing to the Irish government will eventually crack down on us hard. And it's, it's going to be the same. It's going to be the same all over the world. It's going to be the same all over Europe. It's going to be the same all over North America. You know, uh, these governments, right, they have an agenda to absolutely destroy um, Western countries. And, and uh, you know, they, they can't back down. No, you know, they're going to keep going with this. But look, you know, we, we, we fought the British government and the Crown here in this country Right, a hundred years ago, um, there was m- many, many, many lives lost, and you know we we have to step up now again, and we have to take this fight to the tyrants here in this country, who who are, right, as far as I'm concerned, have absolutely no support for this. Their middle management um, government who are led by Europe and the UN and the WEF. But um, look, I, I can't lie down and allow this to happen uh, to my country and to my uh, uh, children. So, you know, I'm going to keep going with this. And, Derek, and so are many, many others. And, and as briefly as you can, if you don't mind, look, I don't believe in the existence of any far right in Ireland. Not the Ireland I know. Yeah, I was a journalist back yeah. home for some years before leaving the country, so I don't believe it exists. But in every country, you're going to find some people, even if they are a minority, who do despise yeah. or loathe or hate people because they 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 look differently. Do you and others like you have to be wary of that and keep an eye on it? And I'm talking about um, infiltration and, and whatnot, you know, because you're going to get these people. I mean, Absolutely. Ireland is not unique. You will have racists there. And you have to keep an eye out for these people and, give, you know, keep them at arm's length. Is that a concern for you? Yeah, absolutely. Look, you could count the number of of right, extreme far-right racists in Ireland on, on a few hands. 
There's, there's not that many of them there. Most of the people in this fight had no problem with the levels of immigration coming into the country over the last 20 years. There's, there's numerous, numerous nationalities living here. Nobody had a problem with it, including myself. Um, the government have tried unsuccessfully right, to label us as racists and fascists and far right, this, that and the other. But we've continuously proven them wrong, okay, because we, we're peaceful, we're, we're, we're caring people, right, and, and we're not in this for the wrong reasons. And while the government might have some, some small victories here and there, we are winning the war overall because we've shown the Irish public that we are righteous and we are doing this for the right reasons. Derek, nice to chat with you. Nice to meet you. Um, Derek Bligh, it's B-L-I-G-H-E. You'll find Derek on Twitter. He's the president of the political party back home, Ireland first. Nice to meet you, Derek. Sloan Tommel. I'm sure we'll speak again in the future and have a great rest of your Tuesday. Thank you. Lovely talking to you, Richie. Thank you. You're very welcome. Thank you. Derek Bly on the programme live from Fermoy in County Cork. Nice to hear from Derek. Damien is in Kerry. Good evening, Damien. He says, Richie, great to hear Derek speaking with you. We're still protesting in Listowel every Sunday while local councillors and politicians continue to ignore us. Thanks to people like Derek being so vocal, the establishment seem to be panicking while our support appears to be growing. That's Derek in Kerry. Sorry, that's Damien in Kerry. I was speaking with Derek. Yes, I'll get there in the end. Uh, Thank you. Uh, Gaz reckons we should have free movement around the world for everybody, but no free handouts for anyone. And local people should always come first for housing and for health. It's complicated, Gaz, you know. I didn't get into it with Derek, but I did get into it with Harman and others in recent years. The policy of Western governments in the Middle East has been largely to prop up dictators and then denounce those dictators when those dictators ceased to be useful. Then Western governments and intelligence agencies destroyed those countries. For example, see Iraq, see Afghanistan, see Libya and see Syria. Wrecked those countries. There were a lot of young men in those countries quite happy to live in those countries, until those countries became uninhabitable. Now those men are fleeing into southern Europe, into northern Europe, into the UK and into Ireland. I personally have a lot of sympathy with these young men. Of course I do. I'm an old lefty trade unionist. I absolutely abhor what what happened in Iraq and Afghanistan. And, And I completely understand, if you're a young man living in that part of the world, why you'd want to get out of there and get to Britain or get to Ireland. But of course, what you've got then in Ireland is you've got a fiefdom of the European Union. You've got a country whose fiscal policy is written in Brussels and is basically is is executed by puppet governments in Ireland. It's uh, to the detriment of the Irish people who get poorer and poorer and poorer. And then you take a huge influx of people from the Middle East and then from Ukraine. It's bound to collapse. It cannot hold, obviously. So my sympathies are with the people of Ireland, of course, but also with the young men, not all of whom are a threat to um, the, the, the integrity, if I want to put it like that, 
of um, of Irish women and British women. It's not that complicated, but it's not that simple either. Uh, the time is a minute past the hour. It's the Richie Allen Show. It's live. It's in Salford. I'm Richie Allen. It is lovely, as usual, to be with you. Thanks for your messages. Lots of them coming in on this subject and on others. Faisal says, hello, Faisal. It will take a lot of campaigning and persuasion to get enough people on the streets so that violence will no longer be an option for the governments. But it is doable, says Faisal. Diane says, this is why I stay pretty quiet. I have firearms too. The feckers hold that over you, says Diane. Hello to Mr. Sin, who says, if those men were from Australia, the government would have turned them away. Elizabeth says, speaking of the Alaskan plane, Richie, it wasn't a window that blew out, but a door. Thank you, Elizabeth, you're right. It was a door, excuse me. She says, they changed the layout of the original version of the plane by adding rows of seats in that space by taking out the slide and other necessary to increase the number of passengers for profit. Source, uh, Elizabeth Source is a pilot on another podcast she happened to hear today. Thank you. Elizabeth, yes, and as I said, I did hear BBC Radio 5 Live discussing this earlier, and the company that manufactured the door, I believe, um, has been in all sorts of problems regarding staff and other issues in recent years. And this particular Boeing airline, which, um, sorry, this particular Boeing aircraft, which isn't a very common aircraft, this 737, I think Mark 9, is it, which isn't that common, uh, they found, United Airlines found in the last day, didn't it, or two, that some of the bolts are not tight enough on some of these doors, so they've grounded some of these planes. I wouldn't be flying uh, for a while uh, knowing this news. Anyway, my next guest will be standing by waiting to speak to us. His name is Ben Irvine. He's a philosopher, he's a PhD, he's an author, and he's asking some very important questions about how this happened back in 2020. While we line them up, We've got music from The Stranglers. The Stranglers. In the middle of winter. Bang smack in the middle of winter. How many times? Music from The Stranglers. Always the sun. It's about six minutes past the hour of six o'clock. Now the Richie Allen Show broadcasting live from BBG Towers here in Salford. You know, some of our listeners were... Um, emailing me over the Christmas period suggesting I invite my next guest on the programme and I knew about him and he was on a list of people I wanted to invite on it should have happened before now he is a philosopher he is a writer and when I say he's a very good writer I mean he is a very good writer he has been looking back to 2020 to the beginning of the coronavirus pandemic and the response to it by the British government and he's been asking why and investigating why researching why and finding out why initially why people were saying this is a very mild illness which wouldn't uh, harm the majority but might be problematic for elderly people we should carry on as normal what happened then um, to bring about the nightmare that unfolded thereafter the lockdowns the restrictions the madness of taking children out of schools damaging them and and giving filling them up with horror stories about killing granny and granddad what 
what happened during that period? Um, let's speak with uh, my guest. He's written several books, right, I- including the Coronavirus or the Corona Panic Trilogy, books like the Corona Panic Debacle, and uh, one of his most recent books, which is entitled My Road to Freedom, Notes from a Lockdown Delivery Driver. And I will put links to where you can find these books on the podcast notes later on, because I believe they are vital. Let's welcome to the programme Ben Irvine. Hello, Ben. Welcome to the show. Hi, Richie. Lovely to have you on. Thanks for doing it, by the way. Short notice as well. I'm really looking forward to chatting with you. And before we get back into 2020, I noticed that you've been tweeting a lot about the National Education Union. Now, I ask you this because I've been covering on this programme yesterday and today um, news about plans to get children back to school. Uh, The Shadow Education Minister, Bridget Phillipson, has been doing the rounds today. Um, The government ministers were doing the rounds of the media yesterday, talking about how we need to send kids to school, even if they have sore throats and runny noses, because we've got to tackle soaring absenteeism. Now, that's almost like a form of mental torture, and that's just my opinion. So you tell people, stay away from others, don't infect them, don't infect your teachers, don't infect granny, you might kill them. And now they're saying, we can't tolerate the absenteeism, you should go to school, even if you have a sore throat road you must be tearing your hair out reading that sort of stuff today and yesterday oh it's just unbelievable isn't it i mean this is a country where we're supposed to have a stiff upper lip where we're supposed to keep calm and carry on where we're supposed to be stoical uh, and it's a country where adults are supposed to make sacrifices to protect children not the other way around uh, the idea that we should you know uh, bar children from going to school because they have got a cold is so absurd so ludicrous it's it's beyond belief it's an abomination uh, so and this nonsense has to stop and it's been going on for four years uh this incessant agitation by teaching unions trying to close down our education system and harm the lives of children uh, for no reason whatsoever other than to cause havoc and damage an elected government um i'm as disgusted now as i was in march 20 2020 when this all started Yeah, we'll go back in a second. We'll go back to 2020 and where you were and what you were doing and your observations, because you you, you genuinely have alerted me and opened my mind to the part played by the unions, because I didn't pay a lot of attention even until I began reading and I bought your book on Kindle today, by the way, the My Road to Freedom, Notes from a Lockdown Delivery Driver. I know I could have gotten you to send it to me, but I like to buy uh, the books when my guests come on. So, um, yeah, um, we'll, we'll, we'll come to that because you have kind of opened my mind to the whole kind of whole union uh, thing. But on the on the education thing and the schools, just before we get to that, it must be damaging the minds of children. I mean, to, to give two such completely diametrically opposed messages don't do this but now it's okay to do it that must have some impact on the minds of kids absolutely i I just i feel dreadful for these poor kids Uh, all along this has been the thing that's um troubled me the most is is that kids are being used as political pawns by adults uh, with no regard whatsoever for the welfare the well-being of of the children themselves Uh, i mean the idea that the idea that a cold or any sort of respiratory infection, you know, the likes of which we see every winter and we've seen every winter in this country forever should be a reason to disrupt the, uh, the lives of children, um, to cause this, this doubt, this guilt uh, in, in the minds of children is just it's so abominable. It's, it's beyond belief. And, uh, you know, 
it has to stop and the reasonable people in this country need to start having an honest discussion about what's been going on since March 2020 so that we can clear the air and we can tell the kids none of this is acceptable. None of it has ever been acceptable. It's extremely un-British and we want to build a, a country where your, your needs are put first, not the needs of some militant teacher who doesn't want to come in contact with the cold. Fair enough, Ben. Ben Irvine is our guest. You'll find him on Twitter. Ben Irvine Author is his Twitter handle. And do get on there and follow him on Twitter because he's putting together some really interesting threads that go right back to the very beginning. You posted some interesting screen grabs of conversations Matt Hancock was having in 2020, in very early 2020. He was the health secretary at the time and he was very happy to go along with, you know, the idea that, yes, this is a mild infection, we shouldn't scaremonger. He was even talking openly in WhatsApp groups about how the media shouldn't scaremonger people about this. Now, as far as you understand it, what happens then, uh, Ben? What happened? How did the government then get twisted around 180 degrees from that position whereby this is not that serious, really? Let's carry on as normal and take measures you know, to keep an eye on the older people. How did it go from that to Johnson sitting down with the grim face saying, we've got to lock down? And what part did the unions play in this? Well, yeah, first of all, thanks for asking, Richie. It's uh, it's great to hear someone as prominent and successful as yourself even asking the question. Uh, it's a question that is, is paramount in all of this. Uh, we had two chief scientists and a, and a prime minister and a government um, determined to allow this virus to spread naturally through the young and healthy population to build up herd immunity, uh, keeping the vulnerable safe if that's what they wanted in the interim period, so that um, the, the sooner that herd immunity being achieved, the vulnerable could come out of isolation and, um, and, and, and carry on as normal. That was the scientific, sensible, rational, humane policy. And it ultimately wasn't pursued. Um, and the reasons it wasn't pursued, I'm absolutely convinced, were not scientific. Uh, the lockdown and none of the COVID mandates were ever a health policy in any sense. So you've asked the right question. Um, and it, it astonishes and dismays me that there's been uh, a complete and utter, I mean, total 100% lack of interest in this question from the mainstream media. It ought to have been the question that people were asking at the time, the week after, two weeks after, a month after, six months after, and all the way through the entire debacle. Why on earth did our government U-turn on a sensible scientific policy? So to answer your question, I mean, I've written three books about this now. There's an enormous amount of detail that people need to absorb. Uh, but essentially, there was uh, what you would call a kind of coup, a Marxist campaign of disruption throughout the whole public sector, throughout Britain's institutions and throughout Britain's unions to try to uh, disrupt and um, uh, uh, disobey the herd immunity policy and unilaterally shut down workplaces and ultimately shut down the country. Uh, the detail is horrifying, really. Uh, you've got the first kind of shot fired in, in early March, in the second week of March, by GMB, one of the large health unions. They were agitating for better PPE in hospitals, and they said that people just won't come to work if they don't have the PPE. So you've got threats being made. This initial surge of uh, this clamour of fury from the media over PPE, that kind of set the tone. 
Um, you then got the Electoral Commission advising the government to cancel local elections in May. I mean, this is just absolutely horrific. This is our democracy. And you've got um, the Electoral Commission trying to get the government to cancel a democratic election, probably because the left would have lost heavily in that election because Johnson had just been elected on a landslide by the right and, and, and large swathes of um, the traditional left wing electorate to deliver Brexit. Uh, you've got the General Secretary of Labour writing to all um, local party branches, advising them to suspend campaigning. This is happening in the second week of March 2020, with an election coming up in May. Um, you've got the local government association trying to, uh, agitating for the local elections to be cancelled. You've got the Association of Electoral Administrators calling on the government to cancel the local elections. This is all, again, happening in the second week of May. Um, I, could, I could go on. <laughs> No, no, um, this is really good. Yeah. Stay with this. But with such a strong mandate, assuming this is true, and I've researched a lot today knowing you were coming on, and I think you're on the right track here. I think you're on to something, and I'm looking forward to reading your most recent book. I'll get the others too, Ben. I'm not just saying that. I will do that. So I think you're on to something. But you, you've thrown a kind of um, a paradox in there. I'm not saying that as well as I could. Why did they cave with such a massive mandate from that election in late 2019 then? It would have, I would imagine that it would be easy to say, well, the GMB um, health union and other unions can go and take a running jump, but we don't give a damn what they say. This is a mild respiratory illness. We're not going to wreck the economy and keep kids out of schools and panic about it. We're going to stick to our guns. Why didn't they? It's a brilliant question. Let me give, I mean, I think there are three parts to that answer. The first part is the sheer scale of the union assault. Um, you've got the TUC, which is uh, the, a confederation of 48 unions in this country. In the run up to the U-turn, which took place on March the 16th, um, you've got the TUC trying to unilaterally shut down workplaces, um, calling on their constituent um, members and unions to uh, submit Section 44 letters to the effect that the workplace was allegedly unsafe and therefore people weren't going to turn up to work. Um, when you look at the actions of individual unions during this time, you've got the RMT saying they were going to take whatever action was necessary to protect their members. That's the Rail Workers Union. You've got the UCU, the academic union, formally calling for universities to close. You've got PCS, the civil service union, advising its members on, sec on the use of Section 44. You've got unbelievable... Um, uh, disruption in the legal sector with unions, multiple unions trying to shut down the entire court system while the government was mounting a rearguard action to keep the courts open. You've got the National Union of Journalists supporting a lockdown. You've got Unite, Britain's biggest union with 1.3 million members wanting a lockdown. And above all, you've got the National Education Union. Um, they started agitating for schools closures at, uh, 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 on March the 14th and probably earlier. On March the 17th, they were threatening unilateral closures. And now we've got this retrospective statement from the NEU saying in one of their newsletters, the union was uncompromising in its stance that schools should be closed before March the 23rd at the latest. And if not, NEU members should refuse to return to work. So you've got the NEU now claiming that they basically were, were, were willing to stage uh, an industrial walkout to stop the government from keeping the schools open in March 2020. And obviously, without the schools being open, it's, it's difficult to see how the economy could possibly function. Um, you've got something like one in four workers that would have been extracted from the workplace without their children being supervised at school. If you imagine a, something like an airport trying to function with only with one in four members of staff missing and then um, uh, extrapolate that across the whole economy, the economic disruption would have been immense. So that's the first part 
of the answer to your question, the scale of the unrest. It was it was effectively a national strike that was happening spontaneously and being conveyed across social media, across WhatsApp groups in, in, a, in an almost explosive way. I, I would defy any government to be able to challenge that sort of a, action on that scale. Yeah. And did somebody buckle first? I mean, did some of the scientific advisors around Boris Johnson, did they wilt first under this avalanche of union pressure? Or was it the government? Was it Hancock? Who, who in, in your own investigation, was there anybody who, you know, fell first or, or seemed to give in first to this kind of pressure? Again, that's a really good question. I, I, I don't know the answer to that question. Um, my suspicion is that the the scientific advice didn't, in a way, didn't really change. What happened was that Neil Ferguson's research was kind of pushed forward in order to spin a U-turn that had been made already on political grounds. So uh, m- my suspicion is that there, uh, that there was no, there was never any scientific impetus for any of this. It was simply that the the, the scientists were asked. I, I I I suspect to change their messaging, given the political landscape at the time. Um, if you if you look at my essay, the road to lockdown, there are little indications, subtle hints that um, Ferguson's paper was actually. Uh, almost tailored really to to help spin the herd immunity U-turn. There are little uses of language and little statements that he makes in that paper. And I describe all this in detail in in The Road to Lockdown, which is in my book, The Corona Panic Debacle. So I don't think think any one person uh, caused the government to U-turn. But there is another factor in all of this, which is that uh, it's been reported that there was a threat of a cabinet mutiny on March the 22nd. Uh, to try to force the government to to lock down London. Um, so B- Boris Johnson, we know, announced the lockdown on March the 23rd. Well, obviously, if his entire cabinet was threatening to mutiny, the lockdown would have happened anyway. So you can understand why Johnson himself took the decision to lock down, because he probably thought, well, this is like a kind of socialist Ramona coup, and these guys are probably going to try to reverse Brexit if I'm not in power. So I'll sort of lean into this, because if I'm usurped, the lockdown's going to happen anyway, and we're going to lose Brexit in those circumstances. So Maybe I'm giving too much credit to Johnson here. I don't know what was going on in his mind, but I do know that this coup allegedly took place within the cabinet itself. And looking at the parliamentary arithmetic as well, he may have had a majority of 80, but all it would have taken was 40 Conservative MPs um, supporting the lockdown um, in in defiance of government policy. And that would have given a majority for a pro-lockdown majority in Parliament. Yeah. Labour themselves were agitating for lockdown uh, and essentially supporting the unions in in this Marxist uh, action. And you had more, you had more than 40 Remainer Tories. So you could make that argument that you've made that Johnson was was nervous about that. Ben Irvine is our guest. Ben is a PhD. He's a philosopher and he's an author. You'll find links to his books at benirvine.co.uk and you should follow him on Twitter at Ben Irvine Author. Here's where I have an issue with the unions being blamed for, I'm not saying you're wrong by the way, I think you're onto something, but I'm going to challenge this because this happened everywhere else around the world at the same time and this is what I can't get my head around. This kind of idea of lockstep. So do we surmise that it was unions in Ireland, it was unions in France, it was unions in Italy? What was going on? Why was this happening everywhere at the same time, all at once? Yeah, I, it's a question I get asked all the time. Um, well, there, there, there are, again, numerous answers to that question. One is that the mass panic was the same everywhere. Uh, this was probably the first instance of a global hysteria. 
Uh, we also know from the research of Michael Sanger that uh, the Chinese Communist Party were, were stoking this global hysteria deliberately. Uh, they were agitating in newspapers for lockdowns. They were using social media bots uh, to, to, to fearmonger and um, promote uh, lockdowns. Uh, we, we know, for instance, that the Telegraph newspaper, well, they're, they're alleged to have printed something like 50 uh, articles by the Chinese Communist Party in the in early 2020. Most of those articles have now been deleted from the Telegraph newspaper. So the panic and the stoking of the panic worldwide was the same. Um, we also know that uh, the international union uh, federations were also agitating for lockdowns. I've, I've done a lot of research on this in my book, uh, My Road to Freedom. So the, the kind of union uh, agitation was cascading around the world at the same time as the panic was cascading around the world. We also know on March the 16th, when a British government U-turned, that they, they had a meeting with the G7 to talk about kind of coordinating activity uh, internationally. Obviously, the, the pandemic folks, the people who think this is all planned, will see that as, as evidence that uh, governments were in cahoots all along. But I just, looking at the timing, I just see it as evidence that governments around the world were facing exactly the same kind of social up, upheaval uh, and, and union um, earthquake uh, simultaneously. So it's no surprise that you know, leaders got together and, and came up with a kind of package of, of, of lockdowns to, to, to sort of keep themselves in power, to sort of re retain some semblance of control when this worldwide panic was happening and countries were shutting down unilaterally. So that, that would be my answer to your question. And it wasn't in lockstep. Some countries didn't lock down. In Sweden, the, the, the teaching unions didn't run amok. And um, uh, Tegnell, the uh, state epidemiologist, wasn't advising lockdowns. And the public weren't in support of lockdowns. So there was no lockdown in Sweden. In some states in America, there weren't lockdowns. Uh, so it's not. it wasn't in lockstep. And, and even the countries that did lock down, it wasn't exactly on the same day. Australia held out uh, for about a week longer than England did. And other countries went into lockdown sooner than England did. So it... it, 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 it Lockstep is the wrong word anyway, and there are other explanations as to what happened on a global scale. Fair enough. Ben Irvine is our guest. Um, I'm going to read out some comments because they're pouring in. Chris says, remember, the SAGE committee was comprised of almost all behavioural scientists, not doctors. That's Chris' uh, opinion there. Uh, hi to Patricia, who says, is it wrong to suggest that it wouldn't be the first time people sold their soul for money? That's Patricia's question. It's an interesting question, but there wasn't any financial um, inducement, was there? There wasn't any financial gain for the unions to do this, to pull people out of work and basically to shut down the economy. Well, we we don't know if there was or not. I mean, the, these unions have probably got links with um, communist regimes throughout the world. That's that's always been the way uh, throughout history. So we can't say for sure. I'll tell you what's amazing. It. Sorry, sorry to interrupt you, but I'll tell you what's amazing. And I want to do, we talked off air briefly today. So I want to do this. It's only going to take a minute to do this. Um, what you heard from Ben is absolutely spot on in terms of the demands being made by the unions in mid-March, right? So it's even more astonishing that the, the, the chief medical officer of England, Chris Whitty, would say this in April, in fact, in late April of 2020. Just have, just have a listen to this, and this is really crazy. Uh, the, 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 the more time passes, the crazier this is. This is England's chief medical officer. To balance two things. The seriousness of this virus as an epidemic, and it clearly is a very serious epidemic, 
but equally the fact that actually the great majority of people will not die from this. And I'll just repeat something I said right at the beginning because I think it's worth reinforcing. Most people, uh, well, a significant proportion of people will not get this virus at all at any point in the epidemic, which is going to go on for a long period of time. Of those who do, some of them will get the virus without even knowing it. They will have the virus with no symptoms at all, asymptomatic carriage, and we know that happens. Of those who get symptoms, the great majority, probably 80%, will have a mild or moderate disease, might be bad enough for them to have to go bed to bed for a few days, not bad enough for them to have to go to the doctor. An unfortunate minority will have to go as far as hospital, but the majority of those will just need oxygen and will then leave hospital. And then a minority of those will end up having to go to severe uh, and critical care, and some of those, sadly, will die. But that's a minority. It's 1% it's or possibly even less than 1% overall. And even in the highest risk group, uh, this is significantly less than 20%, i.e. the great majority of people, even the very highest groups, if they catch this virus, will not die. It's very difficult to hear that now, isn't it, in light of what you've uncovered and what you've been researching. I mean, the guy lays it out. After lockdown has begun, the guy says, listen, my paraphrasing is a bit childish, but I'm going to say it anyway. The guy says, listen, this is pretty much a bit of a nonsense. It's a bit of a storm in a teacup. Don't get too excited by it. And this was a month after the unions began agitating in the way you described, demanding lockdown, demanding schools closing, demanding, um, eventually demanding um, the government pay people to do nothing. How difficult is it to hear that now? It's difficult, yeah. isn't it? Well, my Twitter followers will know I'm very angry about what happened. It's a it's a little nuclear power station of anger, yeah. really, that, that motivates me to to try to get um, justice and truth and um, and sort of a, the air cleared around this stuff. And it wasn't just um, it was it wasn't just witty. It was uh, Patrick Valance, who was um the chief uh, scientific officer, and Boris Johnson himself, who told us before the lockdown. Both of them told us before the lockdown that it was a mild virus, including for the great majority of elderly people. Uh, Johnson was was boasted that he was washed, he was shaking hands with people in a in a hospital where yeah. there were coronavirus patients. Um, Dominic Cummings has said that he even wanted to be injected with COVID live on national TV to to show people that the virus was nothing to be afraid of. So we have to look for an explanation as to why we went into lockdown, um, despite the you know the, the the leading scientific and political figures in the country being against the policy. Uh, as my explanation is not only factual it's the only game in town you know no, nobody has ever even tried to propose a serious explanation as, as to why we went into lockdown and there's even snippets of evidence that i'm correct uh, when the telegraph released their um their, their cache of whatsapps from matt hancock they effectively covered up what had gone on in march 2020 they never gave us any insight into what happened we know that johnson's pretending he's lost his whatsapps and all the leading figures are saying the same thing um, when the Telegraph did release a cache of these WhatsApps, that it's almost as if one slipped through the net because we saw Dominic Cummings saying that head teachers were unilaterally shutting schools down in London. And he said, and his words were, we must get ahead. So we actually know that the government was trying to sort of politically react to the fact that schools were unilaterally closing. And we know that the NEU has, has, has now boasted that they weren't, the teachers weren't going to return to work unless the government imposed a lockdown on the country. So... Uh, it's 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 hard hearing that, but the the hardest thing is that the country won't face up to what actually happened and have an honest conversation about it. No, because the, the media justice, but for the sake of the future too, we need to know how it happened so we can prevent a repeat. Yeah, and you're never going to get the legacy media 
asking these questions or inviting you as eloquent as you are, as qualified as you are, they're not going to invite you on because because the legacy media, there must be some shame. I mean, there must be. I mean, I worked at every level of the media, producing, presenting, commercial and national. I mean, some, some of them must be mortified that rather than challenge any of this nonsense in March or April, they, I mean, you'll remember people like Piers Morgan on ITV in the, in, in, in the very early morning. Rather than challenge lockdown as a policy, he was screaming at Tory ministers um, for not doing it faster and harder. To the point, you might remember, then that for quite a considerable uh, time, Tories refused to go on the programme. They said we're not going to go on because we're being abused. So, so that must explain why the media won't go back. And it seems the COVID inquiry is not remotely interested in how and why the decision to lock down was reached and whether it was right or wrong and how much damage it has done. I mean, you must be looking at the, you must be laughing. You must be, again, to use that term, pulling your hair out, looking at the COVID inquiry because, I mean, the term whitewash comes to mind when I watch it. I don't know about you. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, this is when you get into the real murky depths of this stuff. And thanks thanks for asking these questions. It's absolutely essential that media figures such as yourself do ask these questions going forward. Uh, we have to get clarity and truth as a country um, for the sake of the kids, uh, never mind for the sake of our democracy and, and for ourselves. But um, your your assumption that the media are ashamed is the, is the most sympathetic yeah. assumption. And it's one I, I, I made at the time and... and I still think is is a possible factor. We have to also look at the the possibility that it was just an you know traitorousness, you know, an outright betrayal. Were these people paid to support the lockdown? Um, some figures who who kicked off in a, in early March two thousand and twenty, uh, and I've I've gone into depth into detail about this in my book My Road to Freedom. Some of the media figures were so zealously, you know, disgustingly pro lockdown in those early stages. You have to ask, were they being paid by enemies of Britain to 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 promote that position? Uh, if you go back in, in, with a fine tooth comb and look at what these media figures were saying, to me, it, it, it stinks to high heaven. I do not believe that they were taking that position in good faith. So there, there's there's this possibility that people were, were paid to essentially betray our country. The other interesting snippet of detail we've got on this is Bob Moran himself. Bob Moran, by the way, um, p- pumped out pro-lockdown propaganda by way of his cartoons in the first... Um, Did he, at the beginning? I, yeah, the reason I ask this, yeah. just before you carry on and I won't get in your yeah. way, Bob yeah. Moran at one time was a cartoonist for The Telegraph. Um, a lot of my listeners, I would, I would notice, would be tweeting him and would be happy you know, to do that. They seem to like him. I know nothing about him. I've never spoken to him. I don't think he'd come on this program. So I have no um, connection to him whatsoever. So I just wanted to say who he is. I'm fascinated by this now because he's become a bit of a champion of, of those who, who want accountability and who want people to pay for lockdown, to pay for, 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 for what the, the damage that has been done to kids. So this is interesting. Tell us more about this Bob Moran. I didn't know that he was pumping out pro uh, lockdown propaganda early on. I didn't know that. Yeah, most people don't, and Moran himself denies it. But if you actually look at the cartoons he published, um, there was one of Donald Trump um closing a, a stable door with a horse running away and coughing, and we all know what the idiom you know closing the door after the horse has bolted means. Um, Trump had declared a state of emergency around March the thirteenth, and uh, Bob Moran seemed to be suggesting that it was too late. Uh, so there's a bit of pressure there on Trump, and also by implication pressure on the British government at that stage. And then after the NEU had succeeded in um, driving the schools closures, 
there was a sudden surge of pro-lockdown propaganda emanating from the Telegraph. The Telegraph were just absolutely disgraceful uh, in the early stages. Uh, you had people like Alison Pearson shrieking at people for going to the pub on, on March the 18th. You had Camilla Tomine shrieking at people for taking their kids to the park. Every single conservative, uh, sorry, a Telegraph journalist either hid or was zealously in support of the lockdown. And uh, at this point, around the sort of um, third week of March, you've got Bob Moran sort of p p putting out stuff about um, we, we will sort of patriotic Churchillian's the portrayal of, of Johnson and and Johnson pointing at a British bulldog sort of obediently sitting side, beside his kennel and saying stay and you've got Moran propagandising for mass testing. So all this was going on in the first few weeks and this is completely consistent with what you would expect given that we how the rest of the, the Telegraph's... Um, but Ben, can I ask you this? Could it, could it be, to be fair to them, they're not here obviously, could it mm. be that they genuinely felt in 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 that time in that march of 2020 that they really believed we were in serious danger and that maybe later on when they had a chance to look at it more closely maybe they changed their mind could it be that they just didn't know at the time uh again you're asking all the right questions these are great questions well the first thing to say that to that is it's still a complete and utter betrayal of their journalistic values and the values of our country i mean if a pilot panicked and then downed the plane during a storm, that pilot would lose his license and would never be trusted to fly a play again, plane again. So even if this was a mistake they made in good faith, it's still completely unacceptable, or at least requires some scrutiny from the public. But we actually know... Bob oh, I'll tell Moran you, can I, can I just jump in before you come back on Bob Moran? I'm going to agree with you there, because my my philosophy as a, as a, as a journalist, as a broadcaster, is a very simple one. No matter what a politician is telling you, even if you fundamentally agree with it, it is your job to scrutinise it to the nth degree, to challenge it, to turn it upside down, to shake it. So I'm going to agree with you there. Even if they were scared, once they heard lockdown, they should have been all over that. Even if they were scared of the virus, they should have been like, well, hang on a second. Are there other scientists around the world talking about lockdowns? And they didn't do that. So I'm going to give you that. I agree with it. Uh, you were going to say something about Bob Moran. My apologies. No, thanks. Yeah, and you're right. And and also the circumstances. If you've got a conservative government that's just told us that it's a mild virus and you've got the Chinese Communist Party uh, propagating this lockdown propaganda worldwide, you have to ask what the hell is going on? You know, ought we to um, destroy our entire economy and way of life because ch the Chinese Communist Party wants us to do it? I mean, you have to ask questions and they didn't. So agreed, even, even at a very basic level of responsibility, they failed. But I think it's worse. You know, Bob Moran has kind of let slip on Twitter to me that media editors were summoned by Downing Street and told to uh, ramp up the fear uh, at that point um, after the herd immunity turn had been made, but prior to the actual lockdown. I asked Moran which media editors he was referring to and he didn't respond. But it, I mean, it rings true. We know that the government was paying social media influencers all the way through to, to, to peddle various government lines on things. So it would be staggering if the government hadn't... Um, but paid people to to promote lockdowns at the start. Moran alleged that the government said they would withdraw advertising money from um, from media outlets if they if they didn't promote the lockdown. So if that's the case, and media editor, media and journalists went along with the imposition of this tyranny for that reason. I mean, we don't just have a, a disgraceful episode; we have probably a criminal episode. Um, to, it's, you know, it's a Watergate, Suez crisis levels of um, seriousness. So 
I, I want there to be a proper inquiry into what the heck happened to, my, to our country at that time. The journalists aren't going to conduct that inquiry, not the mainstream ones, because it seems that the whole damn lot of them were complicit in what went on. Every one of them. I remember Eamon Holmes interviewed Denise Welch, the actress, and I was in touch with Denise. I'm still in touch with her occasionally. Um, we, we, we ended up following each other on Twitter and she was kind enough to give me her number and we, we swapped a few texts and all that. I'm not dropping names, but the, the, the reason I'm saying this is because it was at that time when Holmes interviewed her. And Holmes said that people shouldn't be rabble-rousing. He said to, to Denise Welch, she was challenging lockdown and, and mandates, and he said, um, we have a responsibility, basically journalists, at this time, he said, not to be asking questions. That's exactly what he said. I couldn't get over it. I must have used the clip in my monologues. I must have used it 20 or 30 times. as a Because gen- I'm a genuine, I'm a qualified journalist. I couldn't believe that a bloke was saying, a bloke as experienced as Eamon Holmes, we have a responsibility to shut up and tow the government line. That's just madness. That is yeah. fascism. Yeah, absolutely. And whether it's a responsibility or a, or an obligation for contractual financial reasons, uh, which which is a possibility, um, given Moran's comments, we, either way, it's disgraceful. And the, you know, the the second aspect of this is okay. Let's 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 um be, let's be charitable and say that they they panicked and and made a bad decision. I don't believe that's the case, but let's say they did. Well, they then had an obligation to talk honestly about what had gone on, to talk about what happened within their their their, their institutions, and to talk about the decisions they made and to try to clear the air for the sake of the kids but actually this campaign of union um, disruption just went on for two years and it became clearer and clearer and clearer what was going on and instead of saying look the government keeps caving into unions just as they did from day one the journalists all sort of wrung their hands about freedom or some of them did anyway they wrung their hands about freedom while essentially allowing marxist unions to continue monstering our elected government for two years without any challenge from any quarter uh, that that is the that is the part that makes me think something more sinister was something going on something more sinister just... can we talk about that in a second i've got to do two things number one you're listening to ben irvine ben's a philosopher a phd in the northeast originally from australia he's written books like the truth about the wuhan lockdown he's written the corona panic tobacco and also a book i purchased today my road to freedom notes from a lockdown delivery driver please buy the books folks you're listening to a completely independent guy here a very good writer ben irvine buy the books Follow him on his website, benirvine.co.uk. Just before we take one or two listener comments, there, there are lots of them. I have dug out the 26-second clip, Eamon Holmes speaking. And I'm, I'm one man here. There's no producer, Ben. You can <laughs> applaud me if you want. I don't mind. Here's um, Eamon Holmes speaking with Denise Welch. This is a time of national emergency. And um, as I know from myself at the start of all of this, you are not allowed to question uh, the narrative on 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 such things. So there are restrictions on publications. There are restrictions on broadcasters, well, and there will be a lot of people it, saying that you are simply uh, rabble rousing. You're creating panic uh, with all of this. That's that's still to this day, um, and that went on a bit. That clip, I, I still can't get over it. A guy thirty years in the business. Would, 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 would shut up a guest, would close down a woman who's asking, what the hell is going on in this country? No, no, people would say you're rabble-rousing. There are restrictions at the moment we shouldn't be speaking. It's like um, communist China, and I say that with a big grin on my face. 
Well, so, uh, honestly, thanks for sharing that with me. I'd never heard that before. Yeah. I would have used that in my uh, latest book, My Road to Freedom, if I'd known known about it. Because, well, let's take that as confirmation that there was some sort of embargo placed on yeah. the press at that time. Um, and uh, I, I think it's fair to assume the embargo carried on for two years. There must there must have been some sort of ban on the press discussing what was actually driving these restrictions. I, I can go into that in detail if you want. Um, if you look at the second lockdown, I, I've gone into... Gone, gone into detail on this in my essay on this uh, Boris versus the NEU, the second lockdown explained. So the TUC, who, who boasted, by the way, that they forced the government into the furlough scheme, the TUC made this boast in their September 2020 conference. They basically sort of hatched this plan to try to drive another lockdown in the country, to drive working from home. Um, and to drive the continuation of the furlough scheme, the government was actually pausing all of the advice on shielding. Um, they were going to they were going to uh, ditch the furlough scheme, and they were going to reopen the country, including the schools. The TUC led this camp- new campaign of disruption. The NEU was um, agitating for schools closures, and then they launched a, an, an escalation app. They actually called it an escalation app to to help reps to close schools when there were COVID cases in schools. Somebody in the government leaked details of a, of a sort of spin operation that the government was planning to, to to roll out in the event that the NEU succeeded in closing loads of schools. That was leaked in advance and it thereby bounced Johnson into the second lockdown. So it was essentially a, a union-driven second lockdown. We then had the BMA driving uh, restrictions over Christmas. Johnson said he didn't want to lock down over Christmas. He said the same thing about the second lockdown, but he, he was pushed into the Christmas restrictions by um, a, a media campaign by the BMA. And, and goodness knows what else the BMA was threatening at that point. And then came the, the the most scandalous event of all, which hardly anybody ever talks about, even if it, even though it's like the Rosetta Stone, really, for understanding what went on throughout the two years. Um, on January the 4th, 2021, the government was trying to reopen schools. Uh, Boris Johnson went on national TV on the Andrew Marr show and he said the schools are safe. There's no doubt in my mind about that. The schools are safe. Um, on January the 3rd, uh, the National Education Union held a Zoom meeting. They're calling it the biggest trade union meeting in history. Um, some 400,000 people watched that. Oh, we've momentarily... It was like a communist struggle uh, session. They were... We lost you for 15 seconds. We lost you for 15 seconds. You're back. Ben, you were just saying that the union held the biggest meeting uh, on Zoom after Johnson said the schools are safe, the schools are safe. Then there was a big Zoom meeting with um, the biggest um, number of delegates ever. And then we lost you. So continue on from there, please. Sure. Um, And at that meeting, um, the NEU leadership advised the NEU membership that it was unsafe for the teachers to return to school. Um, They called for teachers to hand in a Section 44 letter saying that they they weren't going to return to work on health and safety grounds. Other unions, including head teachers unions, were supporting this action. Uh, And they even provided, the the NEU even provided a sort of template Section 44 letter. Uh, That action, which was an illegal strike by the NEU, it was you need a ballot to have a strike and they did not ballot and they effectively encouraged their members to return to, to, to not return to school. That action just completely um, stymied any reopening of schools by the government. Kevin Courtney later said that hardly any schools reopened on January the 4th. That evening, Boris Johnson went on national TV and announced a lockdown. No mention of the schools closures, no mention of the fact that uh, the NEU had forced the issue. He, he said that, that a new variant of the virus was circulating and that, and that was why he suddenly had to do this U-turn on the schools and the whole country now needed to go into lockdown. The, the crucial point now is not only that this is just 
an astonishing, astonishing act of spin that he got away with. The crucial point is that nobody, literally nobody in the media called him out on it. Nobody said, you've just sent the entire country into lockdown. You've basically committed a crime against humanity because some Marxist teachers are refusing to go to work because there's a cold. You yeah. just put us into lockdown for no reason other than a Marxist assault on and children. We, and we did, but you know, because we, modest as we are, look, the, this particular radio show does have a pretty wide reach, but it's nothing like the BBC. It's nothing like ITN. So while this was going on in 2021, we were criticising it, and I would have had guests criticising it, but we can't reach the same numbers of people. You're absolutely right. The, the media completely ignored this U-turn at that particular point, and then he starts talking about a new variant or scary and as we called it look I we've got about eight minutes left today I'd love you to come back for a part two like really soon for a part two with your permission of course but but you mentioned something sinister look you're a researcher and a PhD so you're not stupid you will have researched this program before coming on so you will probably know that it is my belief and I never phrase this as well as I want to phrase it is that whatever happened in the last three years, and I think you're, you're bang on, the unions played a massive part here, no doubt about that. But I think there has been a desire on the part of oligarchs, if you want to call them that, corporations, other figures, to increasingly take more and more control over people's lives over the decades. And that advantage has been taken over this. I think they use crises, like real crises or fake crises like the COVID uh, pandemic. And I believe they use them to incrementally grab more and more power over people. The world's becoming more dystopian. And I see that. That's what I see and it's what I believe. And you said to me very kindly today, you said, Richie, tear me apart if you feel like it or come at me if you disagree with me. I say the same to you. You tear me if if you think I'm wrong. But I believe that's what's kind of going on here. And I see this with the online safety bill and I see this with people like you. Jesus Christ, you're a PhD, you're an academic, you're a man of words, you're a man of education and you're asking legitimate questions and they've tried to cancel you, they've tried to destroy you. And we see this not just about COVID but about lots of other issues as well. And that's where I see things, going down this horrible, dystopian, great reset, if you want to use that term, kind of road. When you hear that, what, what's your response to it? Do you think I'm mad or people like me are mad? Uh, not not necessarily. I, 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 you, my followers will know I don't believe this was anything like a planned great reset. Yeah. But I, I do agree those technocratic forces are kind of running riot across the world. And um, they're part of the, a bigger problem that we need to confront as as you know, freedom oriented people, Western values um, oriented people. I completely agree with that. I, I just don't believe that agenda was not in any direct way causative. Uh, I think the essential statement that, that the public needs to understand is that without the union assault in March 2020, a union assault that went on happened. for two years, there would have been no COVID restrictions, no mask mandates. That was union driven too. no closures, no Corona panic debacle without the union assault. Uh, I also think that the media covered up the union assault. I call it the great union demic cover up. I think they covered it up because they helped spin the lockdown in the first place and thereafter they didn't want to have an honest discussion about what had happened. So I think the public also needs to understand that there was essentially no honest reporting at all for the entire two years by the mainstream media. I think when those things are understood, we can then start to deal with the other problems, which I I, I acknowledge do exist. I mean, I I hope I haven't got my head in the sand anyway. I don't think you do have your head in the sand. No, I think you're very open. And I, I think... I wish to God more people were like you. You know, I've had academics turn down offers to come on the programme 
because oh you're crazy you believe in all this great research stuff and I'm like I don't believe in all this stuff I, I can only report on what I see and I'm open minded you're on the programme because I think your research is brilliant and I think you're bang on the unions the unions the unions and I didn't pay a lot of attention to that so here's my final question for today and I do hope you'll come back where we won't necessarily have to talk about great research my final question today you're right the unions played a massive part in it if not a 99% part in it could it be then and I'm Maybe I'm clutching at straws. I'm not trying to wind you up. Could it be that forces who do want to change the world into a more draconian, more surveillance type world where everything we do, you know, cashless society and social credit systems, could some of those influences with lots of money, could they have been working through the unions here? Is it possible? Yeah, I mean, I I salute you for your open-mindedness because I... I myself have acknowledged that, you know, sometimes you you learn new information that inflects the way you're looking at things, and and rightly so, that's for any rational person. So uh, that question I've always maintained is an interesting one, uh, and I'm very much open to evidence of any any funding, nefarious funding for unions at that time. I don't know. I don't know why they did what they did. The only thing I do know is that they're socialists, and socialists have a habit of trying to destroy uh, conservative governments and destroy people who believe in freedom so uh, that's my working hypothesis at this moment yeah. in time but we, we, we need to know exactly what went on the most important thing is is that we talk about that which you've uncovered and written about in your books you're absolutely right how could it be that a government could tell you listen we're not too concerned about this we've spoken to the medical experts on hand it's a mild enough thing yes look after the elderly give them the vitamin d3 make sure they're wrapped up well make sure they're ventilated but everybody else please carry on as normal how can that go from there to a week or two later um this is deadly let's lock down the entire nation you're absolutely right and it's lamentable that we have this conversation here and it won't be had on Newsnight tonight on BBC Two it won't be had tomorrow on Good Morning Britain it's horrible because the implications of it are and we touched on this in our off-air chat today is that if we don't talk about what you're talking about Ben they'll do it again won't they in two or three or four years time and do even more damage Absolutely. It's, it's really important. It's also really important. I mean, we we've put our necks above the parapet here. So we're, we're sort of trying to show some kind of leadership in, in this. So I think sometimes it's OK for someone who's got, gone out front on this. It's OK to tell people, you know, come with me here. You know, you've, you've made a mistake. You need to buckle up and you need to be better in future. So I think we do need to point our finger at the public a little bit and say, why aren't you agitating for these conversations? Why aren't you pointing the finger at the media and asking what went on? Why aren't you demanding honest answers from the government? Why aren't you acknowledging your role if you supported the lockdown? Why aren't you acknowledging your role in the mass panic that caused all this? Why aren't you acknowledging that unions may have tried to shut down your workplace? And why aren't you condemning that? Just because you participated at the time doesn't mean you can't retrospectively condemn it and acknowledge fault and try to be better and try to help us get to the bottom of this so i i, I strongly also believe I, I i tend to have this kind of relationship with my followers now on twitter i want to drag people along with me on this uh and that's that's also essential for for getting justice and and, and a you know a, a sense that we can trust each other again going forward as a country because at the moment the the levels of distrust are just dystopian it's horrible and i don't want to live in a britain that's blighted by this uh, indefinitely Ben, I want to thank you for coming on. I hope we can pick it up again in the near future. Um, Listeners, please, got to support independent writers. 
like Ben. We have to, because there are very few of them left. So he's written books. You'll find them benirvine.co.uk. They're on Amazon. The Corona Panic Debacle, The Truth About the Wuhan Lockdown. We mentioned the most recent book. There are also essays on his website too. Uh, the most recent book, My Road to Freedom, Notes from a Lockdown Delivery Driver. You'll find Ben on Twitter, Ben Irvine Author. Pleasure, mate. Thanks for your time today. I want to point out again, it was short notice, me asking you to come on today, but you did. And it was uh, hugely important. Godspeed to you in your work. And as I said, I hope we can pick it up again real soon. Thank you, Ben. Thanks, mate. I'll be delighted to come back too. Cheers, Richie. Thank you, my friend. Ben Irvine, author, philosopher, live on Tuesday's Richie Allen Show. Again, find him on Twitter, Ben Irvine, author. It's Ben Irvine, I-R-V-I-N-E dot co dot U-K. And you'll find links there to the books. I will put these links on the podcast notes when the programme goes online. It's a live radio show. It'll be online for Ben's followers who happen to be uh, tuning in today. Uh, All of the information will be on the podcast notes in around about a half an hour's uh, time. Thank you again to Ben. Uh, To your comments very briefly before I run out of time. Uh, Thank you, Sarah, who says, uh, Richie, what Ben is saying is mind-blowing. Thank you. Wiz says, Richie, the union are the unions using the strength they gained over the government during the scandemic today to gain pay rises they are currently demanding? That's a whiz. I don't know, mate. Zephron says, I'd be more concerned about the mRNA tech, uh, which is being formulated into an airborne vaccine, more concerned about that than I would be about the union involvement in lockdowns back then. Thank you so much for that, uh, Zevron. Uh, Alice says, never really got explained, did it, says Alice. How did they know who was going to have no symptoms? Who, who, was, who would have some symptoms? Who would be hospitalised or die? Unvaccinated got COVID, she says. Must be my Malteser diet that protected me. Anthony says, if the unions pushed the lockdown, who made calls for the use of midazolam and morphine in hospitals? Thank you for that. Uh, Davy says, Richie, why have that uh, Neil Ferguson doing, he says. Uh, the sums on this after... Right, that's one you should have read back before sending it, Davey. I appreciate that. Uh, hi to Seamus. It says, Richie, going forward, the Trade Unions Congress have called a demonstration on the 27th of January against the new anti-strike laws. And then Seamus asked me, how would Ben uh, view this? I didn't see you, Seamus, until now. Uh, thank you for that. Look, we're bang out of time in any case. Thanks for listening today. Thank you to my guest, to Derek Bly in the first hour, and then to Ben Irvine uh, in our two you enjoy the rest of your Tuesday we'll speak tomorrow again at 4 o'clock UK time before that of course tomorrow morning the papers podcast will be online nice and early this programme will be online in about a half an hour okay thank you Sloan Tommel bye now